Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we're going to get a little bit extreme. If none of the trails we've covered on this show up to now are challenging enough for you, we've got an episode for you. This trail covers more than 400 miles of rough and wild terrain, some of which is trail, but other parts of which are just a route that only aspire to be a trail. The trail covers a vast array of different features, including mountaintops, deep redwood forest, canyons, gorges, river crossings, grasslands, oak savanna, and even beaches. For the vast majority of this hike, you'll see almost no one, despite that you're hiking between two major metropolitan areas in the most populated state in the United States. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we hike the Condor Trail in the Los Padres National Forest in California. Welcome to the show, everyone. Don't forget to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with ideas for future episodes. Our guests on this episode are Aaron Owens Mayhew and Brian Sarvis. Both are accomplished and experienced long-distance backpackers. Aaron is a nutritionist who has a meal planning business for backpacking food, which she will talk about in our conversation. And Brian is the author of The Condor Trail Guide, a book that is essential for doing the hike we're going to be talking about. So I have lived in California my whole life, and I've seen and hiked lots of it. But this trail covers some of the most unknown and wild parts of California. Even if just doing a weekend hike or a day hike, the area that this trail traverses is some of the wildest most diverse terrain you can find. As I mentioned in the intro, lots of different kinds of ecosystems and an enormous amount of up and down through some pretty rough terrain, which is surprising considering where this trail is. It practically connects the Los Angeles Basin and the San Francisco Bay Area, which are the two areas I've spent my life living. And it passes through areas I've spent loads of time hiking and loads of time doing other things. So I wanted to cover this trail because it's a long-distance trail that's in my backyard. I also wanted to cover it because I had never heard of it, and I found that surprising that there was such a trail. Just like my guest Erin says during the interview, when she saw the line on a map, in her case, I believe it was on a digital map, it intrigued her and she had to learn more about it. And I have the same kind of reaction when I discover a long-distance trail. So that made this episode exciting for me to do. But another big reason I wanted to cover this trail is that it is different than any other trail I've covered so far on the show. And that's a good thing. My goal is to cover as many different kinds of trails as I can find. What makes the Condor Trail different is the difficulty. Only a few people have ever through hiked it, which means hiking it end to end in one go. 
and only a handful more have done it even section by section. In fact, as Brian points out in our conversation, it's not really a trail at all. It's more of a route on a map. And at times, it just points out where the trail would be if you could build one. And more interesting to me is that, at least for now, it's also not really a trail in development. In other words, there's not an active trail development happening to make the trail more realistically achievable for more people. There are many other trails, and one that comes to mind, for example, is the Bay Area Ridge Trail that's being built around the San Francisco Bay Area that are getting closer and closer to completion every year and will eventually be one continuous trail. But so far, that's not been the case with the Condor Trail. It's really a series of connected existing trails, and there are significant portions of it, though, that go through land that has no trail at all. In other words, for the Condor Trail, for now at least, it is what it is. And that's what makes it interesting, and dare I say, even special. Most of us will never through-hike it, but that's okay. Maybe we'll spend a week on it someday, or even just a weekend. And maybe that will be enough, but maybe not. Maybe, like Aaron, we'll keep coming back to it and hiking more of it. So let's jump in with an open mind. But before we do that, I want to remind you about our sponsor, Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes delicious vegetarian and vegan backpacking meals. But as I always say, you don't have to be a vegetarian or a vegan to really enjoy these meals. They're really great for a lot of reasons. One is that they use quality ingredients, so they taste great. Uh, Another is that they have significant numbers of calories in most of the meals. So a lot of times when you buy a commercial backpacking meal, it will say two servings, but each serving is something like 350 calories. Well, that's not the case with the typical outdoor herbivore meal. Most of the meals I buy from Outdoor Herbivore are between 500 plus to 600 plus calories per serving. So you get a lot of calories, which you really need when you're hiking multi-day hikes. Another great feature about these meals is that they come in really tightly put together packaging, which can be really helpful when you're packing for multiple days and you need space in your backpack or your bear can. Also, they're boil in a bag, meaning you just open the packaging, pour in the boiling water, stir, and after about 10 minutes, your dinner is ready. Outdoor Herbivore delivers worldwide, so even if you're not here in the United States where they are based, you can order Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals. Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a 10% discount on their order at Outdoor Herbivore with the discount code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%. So why not go to OutdoorHerbivore.com right now and order backpacking meals for the upcoming spring and summer seasons and use the Trails Worth Hiking listener discount code TWH10P. OutdoorHerbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, let's start our story today with the namesake of the trail, the California condor. What is a condor? Put simply, a condor is a huge bird. Condors have a wingspan of up to nine and a half feet, which is about three meters. Condors are a vulture. In other words, they're a carrion eater, eating wounded or dead animals, rather than actively hunting healthy living animals. Condors are twice the size of the turkey vulture that we see 
every day in the skies over California. In fact, condors are the largest North American land bird. Besides their enormous size, they look different than turkey vultures by having a large white patch on the underside of their otherwise black wings. And their head is a little bit different color than the turkey vultures. The turkey vulture head is really red. In a lot of the pictures I've seen of the California condor, the head can be white or a little bit off-white and slightly red. I'm not sure exactly what color, but it does look different than the turkey vultures. One interesting thing about condors is they search for food by sight rather than smell, like the turkey vulture. And they have incredible eyesight where they can see from really high up. They live up to 60 years long, so really long-living bird. And they fly up to 150 miles per day looking for food. So a condor is a gigantic bird that flies enormous distances and lives a long time. So us Californians must see them all the time, right? No. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen one. The closest I've come to a vulture of that size was seeing a huge vulture in the Himalayas that flew over me when I was hiking in Nepal a few years ago. Yeah, you heard that right. I saw a similar bird on the other side of the planet in the one trip that I made there. But I don't think I've ever seen the California condor here in my backyard in California. So why is that? In 1987, the California condor became extinct in the wild. That's right, completely extinct in the wild, with only 22 birds left. The only remaining condors were in captivity. In fact, the last few wild condors were captured for future breeding. So how did it come to that? Well, there were a number of reasons. One of those reasons is pesticides, in particular DDT. Another reason is poaching. One of the biggest reasons, it turns out, is lead poisoning. And the lead poisoning comes from shotgun pellets and bullets. So as a carrion eater, as a bird that eats dead or dying other animals, they would often come upon animals that had been shot by hunters. But in eating those animals, they would end up eating the lead in the bullets, which caused severe lead poisoning and killed lots of condors. And they've also suffered from habitat destruction, like many animals. Despite being wiped out in the wild, they were reintroduced into the wild in 1991 through a captive breeding program. And as a result, the population of California condors has grown up to more than 500 birds about two-thirds of which are in the wild. But they're still critically endangered, and they remain one of the world's rarest bird species. But as Brian describes in our conversation, you can see them along their namesake trail. In fact, there are two condor sanctuaries that come close to the trail so that there might be condors flying over you. One is in the San Rafael Wilderness, and then there's the Sespe Sanctuary that's also in a southern part of the Los Padres National Forest. So I mentioned that this trail covers the Los Padres National Forest. What is the Los Padres National Forest? It is the second largest national forest in California. It's almost 2 million acres and more than 2,700 square miles. One interesting feature about the Los Padres National Forest that's a bit different from many others 
is that it is divided into two separate sections that are separated by private land. There's a northern section in Monterey County, near Monterey or in Santa Cruz, California. And there is a southern section that stretches from San Luis Obispo County, south through Santa Barbara and Ventura counties, and even touches on Kern County and Los Angeles County. Almost half of the Los Padres National Forest is protected in 10 different federal wilderness areas. If you've heard previous episodes where I've talked about the Wilderness Act and and how those areas are set up, essentially they are areas within a national forest that have a higher level of protection. So national forests, as you may know, can be used for things like timber and mineral extraction with permitting. But within a wilderness area, there are no structures built, no roads, no mechanization of any kind. And so they really do keep these areas that are wilderness in a sort of primitive or wild state. Chaparral, which is drought-resistant brush, predominates as the vegetation in the Los Padres. But there's also lots of forest and oak savanna as well, as Brian and Aaron will talk about. There's a wide variety of plants and animals and different ecosystems, as I've mentioned. In addition to the condor, there are peregrine falcons and owls and California quail. There's bobcats and mountain lion, mule deer, and even bighorn sheep in the southern part of the Los Padres, just to name a few animals. And for vegetation, in particular, with respect to trees, there are coast redwoods, Jeffrey pine, lots of different oak. There's Douglas fir and even white fir, to name a few of the trees in the Los Padres. The area that today is the Los Padres National Forest covers a region that five different native peoples once inhabited. There's the Chumash, the Salinan, the Esalen, the Tataviam, and the Costanoan. And their presence is still felt. There are over 100 sites in the Los Padres National Forest that contain rock art from native peoples. There are remains of ancient villages, burial sites, rock shelters, and ceremonial locations throughout the Los Padres. And there's also peaks and other natural formations that were of significance to indigenous peoples, such as Mount Pinos, Figueroa Mountain, and Rincon Creek, among others. There are 51 sites within the Los Padres that are on the National Register of Historic Places. And unfortunately, there are continued threats to these sites, including OHV overuse, so off-highway vehicle overuse, livestock grazing, and oil and gas drilling, all of which threaten these historic uh, places of significance to Native peoples. The Condor Trail itself was first proposed in the mid-1990s, and after being first proposed, the Los Padres Forest Association got involved and started mapping a route that was preliminary at the time. Later, uh, Brian Conant, who had become the executive director of the Los Padres Forest Association, mapped the route and made it available to others. The route itself is about 407 miles, and Alan Coles in the 90s came up with the name Condor Trail, and it stuck. And so today we have the Condor Trail. It was first through-hiked in 2015 by Brittany Nielsen, 
And that took her 37 days to hike the trail from end to end in one go. And Brian talks a bit about that during our conversation. So with that introduction, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Aaron Owens Mayhew and Brian Sarvis about the Condor Trail. Today I have with me Brian Sarvis, who is the author of The Condor Trail Guide and the second person to have through-hiked the Condor Trail, and Aaron Owens Mayhew of Backcountry Foodie, which is a recipe and meal planning service for backpacking meals. And Aaron also has extensive experience hiking the Condor Trail. Aaron and Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So the first thing I wanted to know is, how did you come to hear about the Condor Trail? How did this get on your radar? Brian, I can jump in because you're actually going to think this is funny. We had just moved to the Central Coast, um, so we were on our way to Pinnacles National Park to go for a day hike. And I was on my phone on Gaia GPS, kind of looking at the hikes nearby. And lo and behold, there's this really long purple line along the coast. <laughs> and of course, I'm a long distance hiker. So whenever I see really long hikes, I get excited about it. So I zoomed in, start looking into it a little bit more. So my husband's driving. So I'm Googling Condor Trail. What is this? This is so exciting. Brian, on the way home, I bought the book on Amazon in the car. So <laughs> I immediately was like, I'm going to do this. And we'd only been here for two months and I've been working on it ever since. That is great. You just turned on your Gaia app and the trail showed up. Whoa, talk about super downloads. Right. <laughs> and Brian, what about you? I had been reading about the trail in a local paper, The Independent, for, oh, about 20 years. Uh, it, it was uh, sort of as the idea originated and was being built out as a route that included existing trails. And then in 2015, Brittany Nielsen actually through-hiked it. Well... The rest is history. So for people who aren't from California, like the three of us, could you describe where is this trail? Maybe I'll start with you, Brian, since you wrote the book on it. Sure. Well, the Los Padres National Forest is the second largest national forest in California. It's Southern California. Uh, it runs from Castaic on I-5. That's a, probably a good location that a lot of people know, just above the Los Angeles Basin. And it goes all the way up to Carmel. Well, the Condor Trail is a 407-mile trail that runs that same distance from the southern extent to the northern extent. And we could go in either direction, but I like to talk about it in terms of south to north. Okay. And one of the things that's interesting to me about the Los Padres National Forest is that it's not contiguous in the sense that there's sort of two major sections that are separated by quite a big distance. And this trail covers both sections and the space in between. Um, maybe I'll start with you, Aaron. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, just sort of general what the area is like that this trail passes through? Um, I think that's why I've enjoyed it so much because there's so much variety. Um, early on, the first section was really brutal. I spent more time in the water hiking in creeks and pushing through brush than I did actually on real trail. And that's really common in the trail. It just comes and goes, it disappears, and it suddenly reappears again. Then there's also these grassy meadows. Then you're hiking on ridge lines where there's beautiful ocean views. Then you're hiking on the road, you're hiking on bluffs on the beach, um, and then you're back into the mountains again. I've even seen redwoods, I've seen oaks, you know, a lot of poison oak. We can talk about that sometime today. I can tell you my experience with poison oak, uh, multiple experiences, actually. So I think that's why I've enjoyed it so much, because it is so different all along the trail. 
And Brian, this goes through seven different wilderness areas and through on around the edge of four wildlife sanctuaries, quite a bit of protected space in lots of different forms. Right. And a number of major rivers, a lot of ridges, mountain ridges, uh, hot springs along the trail. I mean, there really is a huge variety. I will say that it's dominated by a chaparral vegetation. Uh, and people know as chaparral as, as brushy. In fact, this is a whole new appreciation for chaparral. But it also gets up to the Sky Islands, which are coniferous mountaintops. And it gets up to you know, 6,000, 7,000 feet uh, in places. And it dives down into redwood valleys, beautiful redwood valleys. So it is quite diverse. I think Aaron said it well. When I think of chaparral, I think of hot, dry, and bushwhacking. And I imagine there's some of that, but as you've just said, there's also redwood valleys and quite a bit of other kinds of terrain as well. Yes. Well, we'll talk about this a little more, but you do want to wear long pants and long sleeve shirt. <laughs> and, you know, when Brittany Nielsen went through, she said, next time I go, I'm wearing body armor. I'm going to wear <laughs> shin guards. I'm going to wear <laughs> elbow cuffs. <laughs> And I've been hiking over 20 years, and this is the first time I've ripped my pants. Wow. So <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I have to say the worst bushwhacking I've ever done in my life was in the Ventana Wilderness up above Big Sur, which is sort of toward the end of this trail. It can get really brutal. Yes. But another part of the Ventana uh, and, and other parts are these beautiful grassy slopes that are just dotted with oak trees. I mean, to my mind, you... You hit stretches like that with beautiful rock formations and even native rock art, and you're just in hiker heaven there. So, Brian, talk a little bit about the origins of this trail. Like, Where did this come from? How did this come into being? Alan Coles, uh, in the mid-90s, had this idea. Alan was, uh, was involved with the Sierra Club, and he'd been instrumental in designating a number of wilderness areas. Uh, in the National Forest. And he wrote a letter to his hiking friends, got Chris Danch involved. They got a cartographer involved, Brian Conant, and mapped out a route that originally was in the area where the historic range of the condors was. And that's where the name Condor Trail originated. And they kept going with that idea and routed it all the way up to the end of the uh, the north end of the Los Padres near Carmel, and they had to do something about that gap that was in between because there's a lot of private land back behind Hearst Castle. In fact, the Hearst Ranch and a number of other ranches are back in there. So they routed it down to the beaches and coastal bluffs and some cute, cute coastal towns along the way and I think it's it's just a wonderful thing that here you're working your way through brush, you're working your way along streams, up over mountaintops, and now you're down at the beach and you're walking on a broad strand and then you're up on the bluffs and then you run into 30,000 elephant seals. And then, oh, over across the street, there are a couple of zebras, courtesy of the Hearst Ranch. Those aren't natural to the area. Let's just make it clear, that clear to everybody. <laughs> Definitely so. But what other distance trail in America gives you elephant seals and zebras in the same day? 
<laughs> so that raises a good point about all these different places that it goes through. This is a trail, as I understand it, that's still, I don't know if it's the right term for it, but somewhat in development in the sense that a lot of it is not a trail at all. There's some parts of it that you have to cover finding your own route, but there are other parts of it that are well-established trails that have been there before that are connected. How would you, Aaron, as someone who's hiked it a lot, describe the sort of state of this trail today and in the place of its development? Brian, you may agree or disagree with that. I would call it more of a route okay. than an established trail um, because there is so much cross-country traveling. Um, and I actually, I counted up all the maps that I use. It requires nine maps. Uh, your listeners can't see these, but I have nine different maps that I use to piece together everything because you'll find a portion of the trail on one map and then it suddenly disappears, but it will show up on another map. And so that's how I've been able to piece it together. I do have the GPX downloadable files, but this is something maybe we could talk about later. I never leave the trail without a paper map. And this is one of the first times I've ever done that because it's so underdeveloped. There are times that it's like a highway. I mean, you can easily just cruise right on through. It's very easy to follow, but there are definitely the other times that I've even called rangers and they've really discouraged me from going <laughs> because they're saying the condor trail isn't complete. You know that, right? And I'm like, well, actually it is. There's a book, <laughs> but I would say it's more of a route than it has a true established trail right now. I'm so glad you made that point about taking paper maps along. You know, once my Gaia app actually failed and I had to dig out the paper maps and just figure out where to go. But this is not a trail. It's a route. And in defining that route, this group got together and they looked for the trails that were deepest into the wilderness, those that were farthest away from roads and farthest away from towns. And in places, they just had to figure out, so how do you get from point A to point B where there is no trail? How do you see the development of the trail continuing, if at all? Is it going to be left in the state that it's in where cross country is just part of the deal because it's a route? Uh, more than a trail? Or do you see the future of this being more and more established trails connecting parts that are across country today? At one point, there was legislation that has passed the House, the Coastal uh, Heritage Bill, South Coast Heritage Bill, I think something like that. Uh, it never passed the Senate, but it would have designated this as a National Scenic Trail. And we would have seen a lot of development. As it stands right now, it's just what it is. You go online, download the KML files to your Gaia app or to CalTopo or, you know, some, some GPS guide. And now you have the route. So it, it's not officially designated, but people have been hiking it and we now have a history with it. So going from the idea that it's more of a route and that there are parts of it that you really have to find your own way and there aren't trails, despite that, you have through-hiked it. And back in 2015, it was first through-hiked. And so it is possible to through-hike it, but I would guess that through-hiking is probably not in the cards for most people. Or is that not true? Could most people figure out how to through-hike this? I think so. Uh, at this point, 12 people have actually hiked the trail. I mean, I'm in touch with all of those people of those 12, five have actually through-hiked it. I have hiked it as a section hike and as a through-hike. I've, I've done it in both directions. I mean, I really wanted to know this trail. And I remember when I started, boy, I would dig out my phone all the time and, and see how far off I am and put myself back on the route. Aaron, was that your experience too? 
actually what I was going to say, I can speak as a single female hiker. Um, I think I would have a different experience um, because I've quickly learned the reason why I didn't through hike it after the first few attempts is that I really need a backpacking buddy to feel confident. And again, I've been hiking for 20 plus years. It's not that I'm fearful out there, but it's having the second set of eyes to see where the trail goes, help me troubleshoot when the trail ends, like those kind of things. And then going forward, then coming back and then going forward, then coming back. It's just so much nicer having a buddy. And then after the first two gals that went with me, never wanted to go again. <laughs> it's taken me some time to find new hiking buddies. So actually I was only able to finish about 150 miles this season because of that reason. Um, so as a solo female hiker, I never would through hike it to be quite honest, just for that reason, unless I did have a buddy that could go with me through the whole thing. I think a buddy is a great idea anyway. And I hike alone only because no one else has a month to, to spend hiking. Well, and I've long distance hike all my hikes by myself. This is the very first time that I've actually started a hike feeling anxious. I like see. I said, I've been doing this for a long time and I because I never know what's going to happen. You can have a well laid out plan, but something completely different will happen from that plan. And then you end up backtracking and going home early or having to bail out at a different place. So we could talk about that. Just being flexible is really important on this trail too, I think. I've been there. <laughs> if someone is an experienced hiker and thinking about trying to do this trail, other than the obvious, which I think would be route finding skills and you know, really good facility with map and compass and things like that, as well as the, the apps that can be used. What other skills do you think somebody should really make sure they have down or qualities to be able to even try to do something like a through hike on this? Well, Aaron's experience is, is probably a good illustration of how this trail even starts out, where within a day, you're now down in a stream bed and you're unable to find even vestiges of the trail and you're walking up a stream. And then Aaron and I have both had the the question in our minds about, well, how do you get through Big Narrows? Because we're in a deep canyon down in the Agua Blanca, massive rock sidewalls, and we have to decide whether to work our way up through this canyon, which means you climb up the waterfalls and you climb up over all the brush piles that have been washed in with the winter rains, or whether you climb over the mountain. Now, this is one of the things that intrigued me about the trail in the very first place, which is I sat down with Brian Conant, who had mapped this out and developed the KML files. And I said, Brian, uh, I see where this line goes up over the mountain, but I don't see it on any map. I have a Tom Harrison map here. It's not on that map. It's not on the old USGS maps. I said, how can I find this? Will I be able to find it? He says, no, 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 no. He said, you won't find a trail there. He said, but if there was a trail, that's where it would be. <laughs> so, I, so I've now had the experience of hiking up through the Narrows, which was a lot of fun, but I, it was pretty grueling. And being by myself, you know, I really wondered about it. And hiking over the mountain, actually hiking over the mountain was faster than going up through the Narrows. But it's a pretty daunting experience, even for, I mean, I do wilderness hiking, like High Sierra, you know, the Steve Roper route, and uh, where you're just on your own, you figure out the best way to get there. And, and uh, it's a daunting experience to start out on this trail and realize that, boy, you don't really, it's not like following a path in a park at all. 
this is kind of funny, Brian. We were actually cursing at you doing that up and over the mountain part because we thought you laid the trail. So my friend that was hiking with me, we tried, decided not to do the narrow. She's only five foot two. So she was already having a hard time getting up and over the rocks. I'm oh. five foot eight. So I was helping push her up and over. So we're like, you know, we're going to make the executive decision. We're going to go up and over the mountain. Brian has laid out the trail. It's there. And there was no trail. And we were like, Brian, come on. Really? <laughs> so out loud, we were cursing at you. Just like, come on, man. <laughs> That's all right. I've been cursed at before. <laughs> because I didn't realize that was was just a idea of a route. I had not had that discussion with Brian Cohn yet, like you had. In fact, there is an old, old trail that does go up and cuts across the top. I don't know if you found that. No, we didn't. Oh. <laughs> it was a very long day. <laughs> it would have been. So that's a good segue to the book, Brian. How did you come to write the Condor Trail Guide? When I went to see Brittany Nielsen's presentation, she said some things that really got my attention. One of the things she said was, I went for three days and wasn't able to find water, and my urine was pretty orange. <laughs> well, that got my, my attention. Another was that she said, uh, I was up in this area, which we call the La Brea area. She says, I lost my cell phone and my navigation. And I know Brian Conant had been following her on his computer because she was wearing a spot. And he said, suddenly, she's not going west anymore. Suddenly, she's going due north. And he got in a vehicle and drove through the night because he wanted to be where she ended up at the end of the day, first thing in the morning, so that he could rescue her and pull her out. Uh, I mean, just... Some things had happened like that in her experience. She even said toward the end of the trail, she said, I was just ready to give up. In fact, she says there was a point at the end. I was mentally and physically drained and my heart wasn't in it anymore. I had a few bars on my phone. Now, this is up by Cook Springs where way off in the distance you can see the lights of Hunter Liggett Fort. And you know you have cell phone reception. That's something pretty unusual to have cell phone reception on this trail. She said, I had a few bars on my phone and I called Brian Conant. He answered and said, hello, Britt, you there? I didn't say anything. I was totally out of breath. And I was just bawling. Tears were streaming down my face. After a moment, he said something I'll never forget. He said, Britt, I know you can't see the finish line, he paused, and I was just crying. But he said, I can see it for you. She said, I hung up without saying anything, still bawling, and started literally running, more or less the entire last section of the trail. Wow. Let me say something about the trail conditions. Yeah. About, in fact, I've gone through and done mile counts, about 35% of it is on good trail. Okay. I mean, you know, trail that, that you would normally expect just to be able to follow and, and not run, <laughs> not get off trail. About 35% of it is questionable trail, and, and it runs good to bad. You know, it might just be a faint path in the grass. It might be pushing through brush. In fact, that's another thing that got my attention in Brittany's description. She said, I did a lot of hiking with my two arms up in front of my face, just pushing through brush. 
And that's why we talk about wearing a little body armor. About 15% of it really has no trail at all. You might be just hiking a stream bed, or you might be making your way up over a ridge top and down to the next stream. And about 15% are roads, uh, usually dirt roads, fire roads. In fact, there's even one little paved section that is sort of a pain. Well, that's reassuring to hear because it, it tells me that there are significant sections of the trail that most people would be comfortable doing. Yes. Aaron, Brian has through-hiked it and section-hiked the trail. To what extent have you been hiking the trail? Sounds like you've made several trips on it. Went and looked at my original plan. I originally planned to hike it in eight sections. I do have a, a full a business of my own, so I couldn't through-hike it this season for that reason alone. Um, so I had planned to hike four to five days at a time, go back to work for three to four days, hike again for about a week at a time, and go back. So originally it was going to be eight sections. So far, I've hiked eight sections in 150 miles. So, And I looked at it today. What's left is I have nine more sections that are all backpacking because I'm waiting actually for my hiking buddy that did agree to do the rest with me, left to go on the Appalachian Trail for the season. So when the water comes back, we're actually going to finish it up hopefully this season. I have a buddy. We've already done three or four sections of it together and we get along really well. She's really awesome. So I'm really looking forward to actually finishing it up. If you guys were thinking about telling a friend about a perfect section that they should try to hike, or let's say, you know, let's start with a, a long weekend kind of trip, a two night, three day trip. What would you tell them? Well, the sections that I've done, um, the Cuesta Ridge is a beautiful hike and it's really easy. It's almost a, a family friendly because you can go up, you can stay at the campground or you can even cut it in half um, and camp along the way. There's plenty of campsites there. So you could do a really easy family hike and then go down into what's the name of the campground there, Brian, on Cerro Alto, Cerro Alto campground. So you could even just do an overnight with the family would be really easy. The sections along the ocean are flat and beautiful, really easy. So that could be even something you could do with your children on a day hike kind of thing if you want to do that. So and what I've done so far, those are the easiest. The other ones that I've tackled have been really pretty brutal. So I don't know, Brian, what do you think for the easier ones? Well, there's one very nice little sort of one day hike uh, that goes off of Highway 33 uh, where you go up Bear Canyon, you go into a wilderness area and you hit Deal Junction then. And at Deal Junction, you're into beautiful rock canyon walls. And then you cut back to Highway 33 on a, on a little connector dirt road. It's only a, it's less than a mile long. And altogether, that's about an 11-mile stretch. That's one of the few hikes my husband was willing to do with me. <laughs> he doesn't do difficult hikes. So that is one we've done together with our dog. <laughs> Did he like it? He enjoyed it. Oh, good. He's like, I'm not doing the others with you, but I did enjoy that one. <laughs> what if you tried to do something a little more substantial? Let's say you had a week and you wanted to really explore a highlight of this trail. What would you do for a week? Yeah, I think my favorite section is really this, the central section. That section in uh, San Luis Obispo County, uh, where you go from Highway 166 immediately up onto, it's an up and up trail. You know, every trailhead is an up and up trail. I mean, you may as well steal your resolve from the beginning and, and decide you really do want to do this. But you're on the nose of a, of a ridge that uh, has grassy hillsides, that has oak trees. Then you dive over to a, a 
horrible dirt road that's supposed to be a jeep way and i have no idea how anyone would ride to drive any vehicle on it but it dives down to cross a river adobe creek and then pushes up a hillside which is a grueling push through the brush if you're a coyote or if you're down on your knees you know brian conan always says you you're really not bushwhacking till you're crawling uh when you get to the top of that, you are fully rewarded for all of that effort because now you're on a long ridge, grasses, oak trees, and from that point, then you dive down into a, a beautiful meadowed valley with amazing rock formations, Indian rock art along the way. You go down to Stony Creek uh, at Stony Creek. Now, we're most of the way through the week here, halfway through the week. At Stony Creek, uh, just before you take a trail that goes up to the old historic Caldwell Mesa, which used to be farmed 100 years ago and is just covered with wildflowers, is an amazing swimming hole. Uh, in fact, I even went out this summer because I wanted to see at this point, so are all these water sources dried up by the middle of summer? Well, a lot of them were. A lot of them weren't, though. And this swimming hole at 40 feet across and deep, deep, deep was, was still fully intact at that point. Went up then went to Caldwell Mesa, uh, cut across to, um, uh, and I'm following the route here. I'm just following our little GPS route that's on our, our GPS app uh, off of condortrail.com slash maps, uh, which is the website where you can download this, uh, into a nice grassy meadow with oak trees, then up a switchback trail to High Mountain. High Mountain is spelled just H-I, Mountain. And at the top of that, there's a smoke lookout. It's now used for condor research, but you're about at the point where you're about to find your first person on the trail. In fact, that's one of the remarkable things about this trail. You know, I'm a little apprehensive about telling everyone about this trail because I can go out and not see a single person for four days at a time, five days at a time. Anyway, we're up on, on High Mountain, and then we drop down a beautiful little uh, waterfall canyon. Uh, it's called Big Falls Canyon. It has waterfalls, it has swimming holes, and on weekends, we might get our Cal Poly University crowd out to swim in the water holes, and guess what? They always have beer, <laughs> and, and this never fails. You can say, hey, I'm on a 400-mile hike, and I'm over halfway through, and oh my gosh, you have beer, and it never fails. Anyway, from that point, you go up through Lopez Canyon, which is a deep, very shadowed and wet canyon, just bright green with mosses. There are little newts all over the place, just out looking for love in that canyon. <laughs> and from that point, you climb up to the low mountain road uh, where you're high above uh, San Luis Obispo. And you see those beautiful volcanic domes. There's a whole series of them. They're called the Nine Sisters. And anyone who's been in the area knows the very last one out, which is Morro Rock. They stretch off into the distance. 
and you eventually then get to Highway 101, and there's a route that goes right under Highway 101. You don't have to cross a freeway here. You just cut under where the, the train cuts under at the top of the pass, and you can continue on that ridge to Cerro Alto, which is just what was described for, on Aaron's part. So that's a really nice week. And altogether, that's only 70 miles. And you've seen all sorts of different things. So that's a, a great summary of some of the highlights of the different types of terrain you can see on this trail. And you've talked about sort of jokingly a little bit about the zebras and the elephant seals. But what about other wildlife that was more typical of the area? And, and most of all, I'm curious about the namesake condor. Have you guys seen it flying while you've been out on the trail? Uh, is that something that people have a chance to really see? On my first section hike, the very last day, suddenly the world went dark. And I looked above me, and there were condors. Now, the, probably the best ch chances of seeing condors are at either end of the trail. Right down, again, I'm going to talk about the southern end first. Right down near the Lake Piru area is the Sespe Condor Sanctuary. And there are two dozen nesting pairs in the sanctuary right now. So there's a good chance of seeing some. One of the problems of this trail is, with all the poison oak, a lot of us are looking at our feet, and I seldom look up, and when I do, I think, oh my gosh, I ought to just stop and look around. Well, I have seen a couple condors there, yet just last weekend, I went out, I saw nine condors. I just couldn't believe it. There's a feeding station uh, north of that point, and some cages with young condors to be released. They have four condors right now. You know, once they set out cow carcasses, then <laughs> things like that attract condors. Here's a fun fact. You don't have to smell like a dead cow to attract a condor. You just have to look like one. <laughs> and condors, in fact, often hunt because of the turkey vultures, which is the bird most people see. And those turkey vultures hunt by smell. Condors can see there are a lot of turkey vultures here. I'm going to go take a look. Okay, well, that gives people something to really, it'll be a special thing if you actually see one then, because it sounds like they're there for sure. You've seen them, but maybe not an everyday occurrence. As we go along, uh, I'll tell you a little more about the original condor sanctuary. And in fact, we have a condor on the back of, of this book who is a rock star among condors. And you might find it in the middle of this trail. Okay, I'm looking at the picture now. That is quite a condor for sure. All right, I've heard both of you mention poison oak, so I don't want to skirt around that issue. This is something people have to be aware of. I don't know who, who best wants to talk about that a little bit, but maybe, Aaron, you mentioned it some. Um, what should people be thinking about and how should they deal with all the poison oak they're going to find along a trail like this? I'm highly allergic to poison ivy. I grew up on the East mm -hmm. Coast and I was highly allergic to poison ivy, so I assumed I was going to be allergic to poison oak as well. I didn't realize how allergic to it I was going to be. I've actually ended up in urgent care twice and getting shots, uh. steroid shots. It was so bad. So if you are know that you're highly allergic, wear pants, wear long sleeves, take the tech new, scrub immediately after, even like if you're at lunch, scrub your hands really well before you eat and getting out on your face. Like do not put sunscreen on your face unless you've cleaned your hands first. <laughs> Hiking poles even. I'm 45 now, so things are a little bit sore than they used to be. <laughs> so I use my hiking poles to rub out my legs and 
in my tent at night and I had to like, oh gosh, like don't touch my hiking poles because that was my usual practice because I knew they were, it was covered in poison oak. So in some places it's just unavoidable. You can't get around it. So there have been times I've actually had to turn around and go home because I know what the outcome is going to be if I do push to go through it. So I've had a pretty bad experience with it, but, and it's my understanding too, Brian, um, even though in the off season when it dries, you can still get a rash. Is that accurate? Oh, yes. That urushiol is everywhere. It's in the twigs. It's in the dead leaves. Yes. So do every precaution you can to avoid it. <laughs> I think you're exactly right. You know, in terms of uh, of dangers along the trail, you get rattlesnakes. Well, they put up their little tails and say, I'm over here. Come and look at me. You know, that's no big deal unless you have a dog who wants to go sniff at things. Uh, I've seen mountain lions. I've seen bears. They don't know people on this trail. I haven't seen people. Uh, and because they don't know people, they're very shy. They run away. They just a little woof and they're gone. So poison oak, I think, is the biggest, most ferocious animal out there. I, too, am affected by poison oak. In my through hikes, I got it three different times, and it's not a lot of fun. If I touch poison oak, I wash it off uh, immediately if I can. I take two plastic bags with me, two gallon plastic bags. I put my pants in one for the night. I don't want my pants in the in the tent at night. I put uh, my shirt in another plastic bag for the night, and I make sure that I don't have anything touching in the inside of the tent. You know, you don't want that. You're in a sleeping bag. You don't want it in the tent. Now, that said, the native lore, for people who lived back there for thousands of years, the native lore is that if you eat a dead leaf no larger than a fly's wing, that you will develop some resistance to it. And I, in fact, have been doing that. Now, I'm totally careful. I did my through hike. You know, if I hit poison oak, then I'd suddenly come to a stop and I'd dive for the, the water in the stream or do anything to avoid it. Make sure I never touched it. If my poles touched it, I didn't do anything to my poles until I could wash them off, just like Aaron said. But I didn't get bitten by poison oak once in 400 miles, and I don't really know whether it's because of my ultra-cautious hiking and slow hiking. I mean, this really slows your speed. I mean, you think you can do 15 miles a day pretty easily. Well, you know, now we're down to 12, and now we've been walking in a stream, and we're down to 8, and now, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things that will slow you on this trail. But I believe I may have developed a little bit of resistance. The name for the Latin name for poison oak, I think, says it all: toxic codendron, <laughs> toxic codendron rus. And you can buy this online that's diluted sixty times, and you can take a, a little pill every couple of months. Aaron, I want you to try that out too and see if it works. <laughs> I know I you're know. afraid to eat it, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll take my chances and just try and avoid it <laughs> rather than purposefully exposing myself to it. All right, <laughs> listeners, proceed at your own risk. <laughs> yes. The one other risk on the trail is ticks. 
And, uh, you know, I try to work with everyone who's hiking the trail just because I'm fascinated by their experiences. I want to hear all about it. And, and so what are, you, what are you running into? And, you know, a lot of people get hit by ticks. Now, I spray everything with permethrin. And uh, I used to stop and brush them off every three steps because it, it would seem like they're just jumping on you. I know they don't jump on you. They just hang on to a the end of a, a grass stem and hold out their their front feet, <laughs> their front pinchers to, to grab you. But with toxicodendron, they just fall off my pants and they haven't ever made it to the skin. Yeah. And I've had a similar experience. I've had a few on me and they'll just fall right off. So, and I also spray everything with permethrin. So permethrin? I know, I know they're there, but I haven't had a problem with them. Oh, good. Good. Yeah, and I know that in the in the West for a long time, ticks didn't really have Lyme disease, which is the biggest problem from ticks. But more and more over the last couple of decades, they have brought it from the Eastern U.S. And more and more ticks do have Lyme disease out here. So it is definitely something to be aware of. Yeah. And I've used permethrin for years, too, for mostly for mosquitoes in the Sierra, which is effective. It's also effective for that. But um, that's a good idea. You know, mosquitoes have taste buds on their feet. <laughs> and... You know, if they if they taste permethrin or they taste DEET, then they'll fly away. Yep. Yeah. Yes, it works. It's effective. What time of year is the best time of year to try to do a section of this trail? I'm a real fan of the spring. You know, by middle of summer until it started raining again and the, the trees have actually dropped their leaves so that they're not sucking up the water and the streams start running again, there just isn't enough water out there. Uh, so I like to go at the wettest times of the year, and I'm in love with this March-April period when the streams are full of water, there are wildflowers. In fact, that's, that's the only reason I like to hike from south to north, because the south dries out a little faster. You follow wildflowers north all the way through. So I'd say March-April. Aaron, how about you? I would agree. This has actually been unusual for me. We lived in Seattle, Washington prior to this, where we looked forward to summer. So this is my first summer that I haven't been able to hike <laughs> because it's so dry and you just can't carry enough water because what I have left now are the really long sections. Um, so I'm really looking forward to winter and spring to come so I can get back out there when it is wet. So I agree with um, Brian, the wetter, the better in this particular case. I grew up in Seattle as well. And I'm always there for the third Thursday in August when it's summer. <laughs> Ouch. You don't want to miss that day. <laughs> um, so, Brian, as someone who's through hiked it, how long did it actually take you to do a full through hike? Well, you know, when Brittany went through, she's, she took 37 days. When I did a section hike, all those sections added up together were 34 days. When I did a through hike, it was 34 days, oh, wow. and that was with, with two down days included in that. And we just had Matt Hankst go through. Uh, he's our fifth through hiker, by the way. Matt is a, uh, a triple crown hiker. He doesn't mind taking on a 2,000-mile trail in the Pacific, a 3,000-mile trail in the, the Continental Divide Trail. He, he did the entire East Coast Trail from Florida up to Newfoundland and Labrador, you know, at 3,000 miles. So he went through this trail. The first time he started, he said, too much brush, too many ticks, you know, I have to adjust. He stopped and bought himself some, uh, some snippers <laughs> to, to cut some of the poison oak along the way. 
Well, he decided to go off and do another trail. He just finished the entire trail. And by the way, he said, this is one of the toughest trails I've done. But he did it in a record 31 days. Wow. So wow. here's a big time hiker that was able to do it in 31 days. And I need to explain that I just get up with the sun and I start walking and I keep a little Z-Pax feed bag right under my chin because I'm not going to go into my backpack during the day and I'm not going to sit down and have lunch. I just need to keep walking until the sun's going down. You know, so I spend the entire day walking and, and it still takes me 34 days. So Snippers is an interesting uh piece of equipment to bring on a through hike any other special gear that people should think about that's not of your typical standard backpacking gear more plastic bags certainly <laughs> yeah okay well for me like i mentioned earlier taking paper maps i don't usually take paper maps because the trail is so well routed and there's plenty of signage and that kind of thing that if i and i usually the routes for bailing if you need to are usually pretty well marked so i usually take at least two paper maps to have that. So that's something that's unusual for me, but all the rest of my gear has been pretty much the same. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the scarcity of water at times and maybe even in the spring, I'm not sure, but it is just carry a lot of capacity, have room for lots of water. Is that the solution or what, how do you guys think about that issue? Well, that was a big reason for putting the book together. You know, you don't want to put people in danger. Uh, you want to warn them that you may have to go 15 miles before you're going to find water again. So uh, we've specifically pointed out water availability along the way, and then the places where they might have to just load up. And in fact, I even say in the book, you know, if you get to this creek and you don't have any water in this creek, you need to turn around and go back and bail, or you need to turn around, go back and load up on water uh, because you're not going to find it again for the next uh, six miles. And I rely heavily on the Los Padres um, Facebook group. I just ask people who's been out there recently, how is the water situation? And I always call the rangers, how's the water situation? Has anybody been out there recently? So I even go that extra step, and I don't normally do that for this particular trail. Hike Los Padres is a great source as well because people make entries about water availability along the way. Okay, great. So we've talked about paper maps. We've talked about, is it the Gaia app you guys typically use? Oh, I like to use Gaia. I noticed some other people are using CalTopo. Okay. And downloaded the files onto that. And we've got condortrail.com where there's good resources as well for navigation. Uh, anything else people really need to be thinking about? We've got the face. Was it the Facebook group you mentioned? The Facebook group is really awesome. There are a lot of them primarily day hikers and maybe overnighters that have done sections. So that's been really helpful. And actually, I looked at where I've got my other maps too. The bigsurtrailmap.net is actually another really good resource because once you start getting into that section, I needed a lot of bailout points because not knowing if I was going to get stuck. So that had a lot of designated other hikes. So I could have plan B if needed and not just the Condor Trail route itself that I knew a lot of other hikes that were nearby. And then the other one that I really relied heavily on is the Ventana Wilderness Alliance. It has a lot of great trail reports. So I've used that a lot too as a resource. Yeah, I've used that one in the past as well. I mean, so much so that I will screenshot the most recent trail report and put it on my phone <laughs> because I'll be out there and be like, this person said, turn right at this tree and, or, you know, look for this rock and that kind of thing. So that even having those kind of backup plans have been really helpful. What's the situation for camping? I mean, there's 
a lot of it is, I'm sure, just camp wherever you figure it out. But there's also a fair number of actual camps along this route. So how did you guys think about choosing campsites? A lot of those are historic camps. Uh, they may have been hunting camps. It may have been an old homestead. And they're pretty much wherever you find flat ground and water. And using those guidelines, you camp wherever you find flat ground and water. I, in fact, I love loading up on water for the night so I have enough water for the night and to get started the next day and climbing up high and sleeping up high on a ridge uh, overlooking the Pacific Ocean or something like that in areas that are not designated as campgrounds. It's a national forest, so as soon as you get into the national forest, you can really camp wherever you want. And Aaron? And my experience has been that I've been really impressed by the number of designated campsites coming from outside of California living here now. That's been really nice. Um, But I think, too, again, being the single female and not knowing what's coming is being flexible and confident enough in yourself that you can stop early. Don't feel like you need to pressure yourself to get to that camp because that could be a really miserable experience that if you come up to a flat spot near water, stop. And just make that the camp, even though you may not actually reach the next spot, because who knows what's between that flat spot where you are and the camp that you're hoping to get to. That's right. You know, maybe there's maybe there's over an hour of sunlight yet, but there are times when you ought to just stop. (laughs) Yes. I think your book mentioned, Brian, that because this is, you know, it's not state parks or national parks, you can bring a dog along this route. Um, But a lot of this sounds like would be really challenging for a dog. So you'd probably have to really choose your sections carefully. You really would. Uh, I mean, we've had people who've had experiences with dogs. It's a rough trail. And you know how dogs are. You know, they will kill themselves to stay up with you and, and make you happy. I mean, I have made people carry their dog out of the <laughs> out of the forest not on this trail so much because i don't see very many but like in the high sierras and their paws are all bloody and i say hey you need to be responsible here uh so justin kennedy had gone through with his wife monica and had taken their dogs i was so impressed with their dogs they would run off and then find us miles down the trail. I mean, they were real, real wild dogs. I don't mean certainly wild. I know but, what you mean. But yeah. wild. They were wild. Adventurous. And they both got injured. They were in the middle of a through hike, and both of their dogs had been injured. So they took their dogs home. They went back. They finished the trail. And then uh, Justin took his his daughter, Elena, on the trail as a present, as a gift for her graduation from college. And they did a full through hike of the trail without any dogs. Wow. Wow. Well, and I always hike with my dog whenever possible. She always, she's actually on our logo. I hike with my dog that often, but I don't take her on this trip purely because of the poison oak exposure. Right. Because she doesn't know to avoid the poison oak. Um, and there's so many times that I need to pick her up over in a log or up and over. I mean, she's not a super big dog. So there's lots of times I have to pick her up. And I can't exactly clean her completely to get in the tent at night. So just for the poison oak reasons, I don't take her with me. Okay. Yeah. Now, there are people who are out there like Brian Conant uh, who do take dogs. Uh, and their dogs are very used to it all. Uh, Brian also, by the way, wears gaiters, like knee-high gaiters you know, as protection. Uh, Brian also washes his shirt and his pants before he goes to bed to wash out the poison oak, then puts them on wet in the morning. Nice. 
Now there is there is a toughness, Aaron. I challenge you to do that. What I've actually done is I pack clean clothes, and I'm an ultimate backpacker. I don't oh. pack anything extra, so I don't even bother putting the dirty clothes on from the day before. I pack a brand new set of clothes. Oh, there's an idea. So I'd rather carry the extra weight and not have poison oak. Yeah. Well, what I thought we'd do next is just sort of briefly touch on the highlights of the big sections of the trail. So maybe starting from south to north, as seems to be the, the best way to think about it. And starting with Ventura County, which is the southernmost portion of the trail. And maybe you guys could talk a little bit about, you know, how long it might take to hike this part of the trail and some of the things that might be notable features and maybe some of the biggest challenges along this part of the trail. Well, there are 87 miles of this uh, route in the Ventura County. And in fact, uh, from Lake Piru to Highway 33, that's 61 of those miles. So you could do seven days uh, in the 87 miles, five days in the 61 miles. What you're doing on this hike is to follow along a, a stream bed, a, a creek bed, climb up to uh, the high country, go by uh, just an amazing rock formation in Stone Corral. If you've ever been to Pancake Rocks in New Zealand, it's these flat layered structures that this one goes on for oh, three quarters of a mile or maybe not that much. It just seemed like it is. The Topa Topa Mountains are there. Pine Ridge is up to 7,000 feet. In fact, the tallest mountain along the uh, trail is at Pine Ridge at uh, Reyes Peak at 7,000 feet, 7,500 feet. Uh, this goes through the Sespe Wilderness. The Sespe itself is one of the few undammed rivers in California. It borders the Sespe Condor Sanctuary, uh, where you've got some nesting birds. You might not see them. You have to look up. <laughs> uh, it has a couple of hot springs. It has the Sespe Hot Springs. Last time I was there, there were 40 bighorn uh, sheep that were right above me kicking rocks down on me as I was wading into the hot springs fully clothed because, you know, I needed to wash it all, all my clothes and me. Willet Hot Springs, which is uh, a little little cooler than the Sespe. Uh, the Sespe has progressive pools that start god-awful hot and get a little cooler in each pool as, uh, as cold water is added. Uh, there's a national recreation trail, the Gene Marshall Trail, that cuts right through and you do a good part of. There's native rock art along the way. It has Piedra Blanca, again, another amazing stone structure right along the trail that, that you walk right through the middle of. Uh, it just has a number of features that I think are very exciting. And I think it's a wonderful start to the trail because it tells you, this is not a walk in the woods. Yeah, this is a this this is going to be a butt kicker. So that sounds like an amazing amount of variety, which is great to hear. What about Santa Barbara County? Santa Barbara County has 115 miles of this trail from Highway 33 to Highway 166. Now you can 
cut that a little shorter. In fact, we describe in the book a number of ways to do section hikes that aren't so lengthy because doing 115 miles and carrying food, carrying the weight of food for 115 miles is a possible problem. I mean, I would normally take about 10 days to do something like that. But it has a San Rafael mountain range, goes through the Dick Smith wilderness, goes through the San Rafael wilderness. And this is a place where you do get into serious wilderness. The original Sisquoc Condor Sanctuary is along the Sisquoc, the mighty Sisquoc. You climb down from the headwaters following the Sisquoc and get down into the part of the valley where it widens out and there are old homesteads that were oh, maybe 20 homesteads that were uh, that were inhabited uh, you know 120 years ago and to think that by Manzana schoolhouse there's an old old schoolhouse down there that this is where people had dreams about their futures this is where People fell in love. This is where people made babies. This is where people now uh, have their tombstones and their old chimneys for houses that no longer exist. And their children had to go through to school all summer long because they couldn't cross over the Sisquoc in the wet, wet times of the year. And the school teacher, in fact, lived with one of those families. So it has a great historic uh, significance to it. But this gets up into an area where you really have to find your own way. If you have a good GPS, like a good Gaia app, you can just dig out your phone all day long and follow that line. But, you know, you cross over a stream, you follow a stream up, the, the, you go through a gap, uh, you follow down a stream, and the stream is often the uh, the trail itself. But there are some beautiful trails. Uh, Indians carry our beautiful trails up in that area. And up toward the end, you work your way up through a whole series. Now, this is off the Brian Conant San Rafael wilderness map. Uh, he's a great cartographer, and he says... This route where he's drawn the dotted lines is really a collection of cow paths, old roads that really no longer exist, you know, just various things. And he works you up to Willow Springs. And from Willow Springs, there's a beautiful trail that was actually laid out by a mountain biker that winds its way down to Highway 166. So, in fact, it's one of my favorite areas. If I did a two-week route, I would... Well, I'd probably do the first half of the trail from Lake Piru all the way up to 166. And that would be a, a rugged trip. Now, Aaron, you've hiked quite a bit, it sounds like, in the San Luis Obispo County part. Right. So I went back and actually had to look at the map to see where I've done the second half of the San Luis Obispo and then on into the uh, Monterey County section. So I did the getting up and over the Cuesta Ridge all the way down to Morro Bay, and I've done the entire beachfront se section of it. And that's beautiful, super easy. Um, and running into the elephant seals was interesting. <laughs> there are many times that I would have to jump onto the beach, then immediately jump off the beach to avoid them, and then jump back onto the beach because there was a road in the way. 
And then there were even times where there's overgrowth along the bluffs that, I mean, it was beautiful overgrowth. There are flowers up to my chest that I was like, should I really be here? <laughs> you know, there are a couple of those times that I questioned if I should be there, but there was a trail. Um, so I moved right on through. So it's the San Simeon. I can remember there was a long um, stretch of trees. Do you remember where that is, Brian? The trees, that it's almost like this. It's hard to describe. But it was this tunnel of just these huge trees that you walk through for at least a quarter mile or longer. That was just super beautiful. Just past San Simeon. Right. Historic San Simeon. Right. You know, there there's some cute beach towns along here. Uh, Cayucas, Cambria, uh, in San Simeon. You have New San Simeon, which has hotels. and I mean, it's for people who are going to visit Hearst Castle. Oh, by the way, you could visit Hearst Castle on this trail. And in fact, I've even walked across to it and said... Uh, so if I wanted to go up and visit Hearst Castle, could I? You know, I haven't made reservations in advance. And they said, oh, yeah, we'd take your backpack here. You know, people don't show up. We'd put you on the next bus that has room and you could go up and visit Hearst Castle. And then historic San Simeon, where the warehouse was, where the pier was built to build Hearst Castle, uh, is another, what, mile and a half up the beach from New San Simeon. And that goes on to uh, through this this tunneled area uh, that Aaron's talking about uh, through the trees. That is beautiful. Well, and I've actually gotten quite a few kind of funny looks being a through hiker, having a dirty backpack on and hiking for an extended period of time and never getting off the beach. I've gotten quite a few looks of what is she doing, you know, <laughs> because oh, yes. families under an umbrella, you know, playing ball or whatever the kids are playing in the sand. And I'm just hustling, you know, going straight down the beach for miles and miles and miles. Um, so that's actually yes. those kinds of things are kind of fun, too. And talking to people, they're like, what are you doing? Why do you have this backpack on? You know, that kind of thing. That's a great opportunity to be able to tell people about the trail. Right. It is. There are a number of opportunities to get onto the beach, get onto the bluff, onto the beach, onto the bluff. I mean, you don't have to just follow the highway beyond that point as you go north. You know, that section, that whole San Luis uh, Obispo section in San Luis Obispo County also has the Garcia Wilderness. It has the Santa Lucia Wilderness, which is that... Uh, very shaded, damp canyon. It has the Morrill Strand State Park just above uh, Morrill Rock. Uh, there's a San Simeon Beach toward uh, historic San Simeon. There's the Hearst San Simeon State Park, which has hike and bike campsites. I don't, I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably know this, but you know, you can stop at state parks all the way up and down the coast. And they say, yeah, these two campsites are for hikers and bikers. People who don't have res reservations, they can show up and they just squeeze in. And it's usually a very nice crowd. Seldom do I see hikers. I mean, you see bikers who are pedaling up and down the coast. Yeah, that's my experience, too. We, we often do family trips to Carpinteria State Beach, and they've got a couple of spots there um, in Santa Barbara County for bikers you often see who are going up the coast. So Monterey, what about Monterey County? So you finished the hike going north through Monterey County, and Aaron, you've hiked some of that section. So I've done the beginning of that section, and it starts out really nice, and then it progressively gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> and actually leaving, and this is a section I've skipped. I think you've done this section. Um, 
going back to the Piedra Blanca, the lighthouse where the elephant seals are. Yes. I haven't walked Highway 1 on that section because there's zero shoulder. And I've done other trail. The Oregon Coast Trail was like that with zero shoulder. And I just, I've, I think I have a little PTSD of like fear of traffic. Um, so I've actually skipped from the lighthouse to the San Coproforo Beach section just because I didn't want to walk on the road. But the San Coproforo, the trail head is really hard to find. We And that's right at somebody's driveway. So I know we looked really funny kind of looking around poking around and then we finally like we just got to go up <laughs> so we eventually found it once we just started going up and then it was a clear trail therefore thereafter that it was a beautiful trail and then we did the, i think all the way to salmon creek i don't have my mileage here that we've done um this was the first trail that i did with my new hiking buddy and luckily this was a nice trail so she was like oh i had a great time let's do another one so we came back the next week and did the salmon creek to the next section um brian you're gonna have to help me on um, what the next one was it was another beautiful section and it got a little bit more rugged. So, but she was still ready and we ended up hiking a lot further than we had planned to um, because we just were able to get more miles in. You go up the Buckeye Trail from Salmon Creek and it just rises up and up along the side of the hill. You get higher and higher and pretty soon you're looking way down at Highway 1 and you have really condor style views of the Pacific Ocean at that point. It's it's wonderful. If I remember that section correctly, it's like a lot of grassy areas. Once you get up high, the trees kind of disappear. Yes. Um, it's just these open areas where you're cross country. There's really not a lot of trail. You might follow cow paths kind of thing. Um, but I remember that being fairly grassy and open. And then again, you go back down to the road and then coming back up. This is another section that I lost my next hiking buddy <laughs> was the Willow, the Willow Creek Trailhead. We were able to hike. It started out as a road. Then it went to like a kind of a dirt path. And then it went to a tiny little, you know, single track trail to a brush. So, and that was one we had actually, and she's a young hiker, very strong. And by this time I'd put in enough miles that I was ready to do a 20 mile day. I was just ready to push through it and let's do this all the way to Nascimento Road, and then we were going to come back down. But we got four miles in. Did you make it to the Kinder Gold Mine? No, we couldn't get that far because okay. of the brush. This was the one time I've torn my pants. <laughs> I see. That had we had pushed through the brush, and you could tell somebody had gone through, and actually the hiker that did the video had just gone through, I think, the week before. And since I came back home and watched it, I was like, I never saw where he went through. I know we looked around, we tried up, we tried down, we tried going around, and we just never made it through. And like you were saying, daylight, we had several hours worth of daylight, but at the same time, we weren't going to make it the 20 miles. So we had to make the decision to turn around and go back. So that's a section I'm actually trying to figure out how to backtrack to the other side to get back to where we couldn't pass through and then go back out. So that's as far as I've gotten on the Monterey section is through there. I can tell you. <laughs> well, you know, this whole section is one where you go up to a ridgetop, you hike the ridgetop, you go down into a valley, back up to the ridgetop, and you're hitting the southern extent, natural extent of the redwoods. I know there are redwoods that are planted down in Malibu, but, but the natural redwoods don't start until uh, Redwood Gulch right along this, and, and you're overlooking that gulch. And as you go along, then you dive more and more into redwood valleys, and they're beautiful. And there's always water down there, which amazes me. because Redwoods suck up so much water, but they take a lot of it through, uh, through coastal fog as well. That beginning to um, uh, Willow Creek is one where there's a beautiful fairy circle of redwoods, 
And I had the experience of walking into, you know, these fairy circles have the old mother tree in the middle and it's all, it's either been logged or, or it's, it's rotted. Uh, and then all the, the little trees around, which are still monstrous things, are all genetically identical. Uh, I mean, they're all the babies that have grown up. And I went wandering in. I didn't realize it was guarded by a hornet's nest. Oh, no. And I got stung repeatedly. I got stung in the eye and had to hike for the next two days with one eye closed. Oh. <laughs> but, hey, that's just part of being on the trail. <laughs> As you get further north... Uh, you get on uh, into the Ventana Wilderness. Now, it, it, first you, you go in through the Silver Peak Wilderness, then you go into the Ventana Wilderness, and toward the end, Aaron, have you been at the end of, uh, like, Botcher's Gap, Ventana Wilderness? No, because those are sections that I really need to do as multi-hike, multi-day sections, so I haven't yes. had a chance to do that yet. Okay. Well, it's beautiful. Uh, you're up on grassy ridges with oak trees, and there's one little canyon there, Puerto Suelo Canyon, which everyone refers to as that damn canyon. Um, <laughs> everyone I've talked to has said, yeah, I, you know, it's only two and a half miles up through there, but I spent a half a day up there. And my last time through, I spent uh, yet again another half a day in that canyon just working through because it was all wiped out by the Sobranas fire about four years ago. And then as soon as they opened it up, I went back up and, and I hiked that and, and saw that, well, regardless of a fire coming through, the brush is growing up. We have chaparral, folks. And I got to the Carmel River and the Carmel River was in full flood, you know, full brown swirling water flood. And I couldn't cross the Carmel River. Wow. So I pulled out my... Pulled out my paper map, and I saw where the tributaries to the Carmel River came in and saw how I would have to work my way around, spent a couple days doing that. And I came across a, a mountain lion that was just barely ahead of me, digging around under a bush. The mountain lion headed down a hillside, and I couldn't believe how big this thing was. I mean, I, do mountain lions have tails that are 10 feet long? Because this one did. Do, do, are mountain lions the size of horses? Because this one was. Anyway, you know, I'm usually fairly quiet. In fact, I, I've seen a lot more animals now that I've quieted down and become part of nature instead of just walking through it. And uh, rather uncharacteristically, I gave it a warrior yell and I threw a couple rocks into the brush because I didn't want it to think I was any meek little deer walking along. And I had buried a food canister. When I do my through hikes, I like to bury a food canister about every 50 miles. That way you've driven the whole course and you've looked at all the creeks along the way and you know uh, how much water there is in those creeks, whether they're low or whether they're super high. So I, I buried a food canister up on a hillside in the snow, and I knew that I was going to have to trudge through snow for the next two days, but it started to rain, and I had to have a talk with myself, and the talk was something like, Sarvis, you just need to toughen up here. You need to become that warrior. <laughs> you, you can't You can't just go around yelling at things. You need to become that warrior, and... 
and you've been wetter than this, you've been colder than this, you're safe. And that was enough for me to do 300 more miles. Wow. All in a run. Important stuff, that kind of conversation with yourself. It is. I've been there. Yeah, I know that conversation when you think you're done and you think you can't do it anymore and you got to dig a little bit deeper. (laughs) Very good. So as you look back and think about the entire trail and the opportunity that this trail presents, why is this a trail that is really worth hiking and that other people should think about at least spending some time on? I think personally, like I found it really rewarding because I have pushed myself past my limits that I would normally do. And like Brian was saying, I really enjoy the solitude. If you've gotten to where you're just tired of like being on these highway trails where they're just massive amounts of people that I use backpacking to get away. That's my time to myself. That's where I'm peaceful and that kind of thing. So I really enjoyed it just for that reason to be like Brian said out there. You can be out there for four days and not see a single soul. And also, this is the first time I've really had to hike with other friends. So having the teamwork has been really exciting, actually, and working in in pairs and that kind of thing. So that's something new for me that I've enjoyed about it. And what about you, Brian? Well, that's an incredible thing to me as well. You know, the fact that this trail is anchored on both ends by millions of people. And yet there is so much space back there in the backcountry and no one goes there. It is an amazing thing. And to push yourself to do things, I mean, you know, I've hiked on a lot of trails, but you work on this trail. And I think that's that challenge makes it so rewarding, just so rewarding. And for each of you, is there a particular moment or memory that sticks with you? I mean, you mentioned this moment with a mountain lion that seems pretty intense. Um, But is there a particular moment that sticks out in your mind from all the time you spent on this trail that really sticks with you? I was trying to think. I haven't really had a particular moment, I don't think, other than the new experience of hiking with a buddy and really enjoying the teamwork part of it. Um, That's something that has been different. And now knowing that I also need to know that person's experience level as well, because not everybody's going to have the same level of experience and willingness to push and that kind of thing. So that's actually been, a, a, I guess you could say, a memory. But I don't think I've had anything really out of the ordinary happen other than like coming into brush, which has been brand new and not being able to go any further, um, those kind of things. Oh, actually, now that I'm thinking about this, Brian, the memorable moment was cursing at you going up and over the mountain on day two. <laughs> I will never forget that day. There you <laughs> go. There's always it. a moment. People don't think there's, there is sometimes, but there's always there a moment. There is a moment. I will never forget that day. I am so happy to be the cause of your memorable moment. And and I would say there are a lot of moments. Uh, in fact, I, I wouldn't even call it solitude. You, you get this chance to become a part of nature uh, in so many ways, whether it's bird song, you know, I try to identify the birds. I tried to put everything in the book that a, a person would need to, well, for instance, where that trail starts at San Carpoforo Beach, <laughs> you know, in the trail. But other things, hiking at this time of the year in March and April, you often get snow at 6,000 feet. And twice now, I've had to cross that Pine Mountain Ridge in snow. Well, you know, I've crossed it on trail without snow before. Uh, and in snow, it's, it's quite a bit different. It's not really a problem. Uh, you just have to stay on the ridge top. There are beautiful rock formations up there, and you just have to find your own way. 
If you're post-tolling, you sort of worry about whether you're going to be able to do this rapidly enough to get to shelter on the other side or you're going to have to hang out for the night here. But again, I think that kind of a challenge is, is just great fun. I mean, you're pushing the envelope and this trail will push your envelope for sure. Well, I think that's a good point to to stop on talking about the trail. So thank you to both of you for talking to me about this trail. It seems like an incredible adventure. But before we go, I wanted to switch topics and talk about a few other things um, while I have you. And one is, Aaron, I wanted you to talk a little bit about what is Backcountry Foodie, your business. Well, other than just being a backpacking fanatic. I love being outside. Actually, my full-time career, I'm a registered dietitian, is I get to backpack and make uh, backpacking meal recipes for a living. So this was part of the Condor Trail. This actually, um, every year I do a long distance trail. And this particular year, I'm doing the Condor Trail only using Dollar Tree recipes because I wanted to prove that you can eat on a budget. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's fantastic. So that's what I do for Backcountry Foodie. Um, My first year, I did super high calorie um, through hiking recipes. Then when I was on the Oregon Coast Trail, I did a whole month's worth of cold soaking recipes. Um, So my website and what I do is all based on my own experience in the backcountry. And so I also do nutrition coaching for folks that are struggling, whether they're hitting the wall, they have, you know, tons of food allergies, diet restrictions, and that kind of thing. And the exciting thing I'm doing for the 2023 season is I'm going to start doing a resupply coordination for long distance hikers. I'm going to start packing their boxes for them and shipping them to their destinations because that's something I understand. I've done it numerous times myself. And I know what a hassle it is to make your resupply boxes. I know what a hassle it is when you think you're going to get to one particular post office that you already mailed it to. You're either two days short or two days past. So I'm really excited about offering a new service to help hikers make that one less stress that all you have to do is show up, your food is there and keep on trucking. I can imagine though, you're not going to take Brian's uh, resupply bear can and go bury it in the woods for him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, you know, from your description, you may have found a new hiking buddy here. <laughs> you know, I don't even take a stove. I mean, I don't want the weight of a stove. I don't want fuel. I take a Gatorade bottle there and and granola bars and gorp. And, and, you know, I'll take a Gatorade bottle and I'll pour. Oh, you're probably going to cringe at this. But I'll pour the old package of Lipton noodle soup into it and just let it soak for an hour. And, you know, then you've got soup. (laughs) It's like borscht. It's cold. Um, Yeah. So, Aaron, one thing I noticed in looking at your website is that you are based in Orchid, California. And I have to tell you, I'm excited by that, which nobody else in the world would say, probably. But my mother-in-law and my in-laws for a long time now, only my mother-in-law, after my father-in-law passed away several years ago. But they live in Santa Maria on the Orchid, right off of Clark Avenue, where your business is based. So I was excited to hear that you're right there. And I've been going to that area for 30 years. And I thought maybe you had some advice for either great day hikes in that area uh, or even an overnight trip really close to Santa Maria and Orchid that I might consider next time I'm there. Um, And again, my husband's not somebody that likes to do really rugged things. So our day hikes tend to be pretty low key. That works. Um, So the Point Sal um, hike is really amazing. It gets you up and you get to see the ocean. It's beautiful views. It's really easy. It's actually primarily a dirt road all the way up. So that's another family friendly kind of thing. Your dogs can go. Um, I want to say it's seven, seven or eight miles round trip, I want to say. And then there's actually one of the 
trails that I eventually like to do is the California Coaster Trail. So it actually goes through that section. So we did a little bit of that the last time we were up there. There was a um, Vandenberg and one of the launches was there. So we kind of hiked out there and got up on top and were able to do. We do quite a, this isn't Santa Maria, but we do quite a bit of hiking in the Figueroa Mountain area. Um, so there's lots of really great hikes there. Even going up to Morro Bay is a little bit further north of Orchid. Um, there's a lot of day hiking that you can do there. But most of the backpacking that I've done, we've only lived here a few months, so I haven't okay. been here that long to do a lot of backpacking. But that's primarily been the Condor Trail. Okay. Those are some good ideas for some day hikes. And Brian, you're in Santa Barbara? I'm in Santa Barbara, and the Santa Inez uh, range that runs east to west here is just full of front country hikes. Uh, so everyone's out hiking all the time, and there are many of them, uh, just a lot of trails here. I've done a lot of the front country day hikes in that area because they've spent a lot of time in the Santa Barbara area. But my son, who, like me, is a backpacking nut, uh, is now going to UC Santa Barbara. And he wants me to come down in either February or March and go backpacking with him in Santa Barbara. So what do you think, if we were going to do three days, two nights in, in the Santa Barbara area, what would you recommend? I would have you drive for an hour back into Naira and hike up Manzana Creek, maybe go to South Fork. That whole White Ledge area on the way is just wonderful. Uh, it's so spectacularly scenic. Uh, you could go in the other direction down toward um, Manzana Schoolhouse. You could do a loop. I like to take a mountain bike and go up to Mission Pine Springs where uh, it's up by Mount San Rafael, which is one of the highest mountains around here. You stash your bike, you hike into Mission Pine Springs with spectacular rock formations, and there's always water dribbling out of that pipe. I don't know how that happens, but there's always water dribbling out of the pipe. There are huge, huge um, rocks that look like uh, ancient skulls. And, you know, I think maybe the stone giants of uh, Los Padres, of, which must have perished millions of years ago, are, are still in remnant there. <laughs> All right. Certainly, I'll tell you, I have a, a huge appreciation of the native people, people who lived here for thousands of years, and these trails are their trails. Uh, you know, these sites are their sites. The rock art is their rock art. And they knew this. And if you read the ethnobiology of what they knew about every plant, you would just be amazed that, you know, we have so little knowledge compared to them. I'm envious of that kind of knowledge. Well put. So before we go, a few last questions. I'd like to have a few fun questions at the end. Aaron, what is one piece of gear you never leave home without? Well, the obvious answer that most people would probably agree with is my GPS, my Garmin GPS. I always take with me regardless of how short or long the hike is. Um, but the more probably unusual piece of gear that I always take is my Frog Togs emergency poncho, a disposable poncho that weighs, again, I'm an ultralight backpacker. So I take that everywhere I go because I use it as a multi-piece item. I use it as a poncho. I use it as a pack cover. Um, when I'm through hiking, I use it as my laundry day clothes. I use it as ground cover. I'll use it as skirt, a skirt in the evening to keep the mosquitoes off of me. Um, so that's the one piece of gear that is multi-purpose that it always goes with me. Even though it's not going to rain, I have all these other uses for it. Brian, what about you? Any particular piece of gear that you always have with you? Well, you know, I was running through my list of gear just the other day. I just happened to be. And, you know, we're now in an era of a one and a half pound backpack, a one and a half pound sleep system, 
a one and a half pound tent, a one and a half pound communication system. You know, my my goal zero uh, solar collector panel just disintegrated on this trail. Uh, the the brush just tore it apart. Uh, so now I take a battery, I take a Garmin in reach, uh, I take my phone, but I think of all those things. I think my phone, I, I, I'd love to sound like more of a Luddite, but, but my phone's the most critical thing I have there. I use it, use it to Bluetooth into the, the satellite uh, communicator. You know, I, I can text my wife now. She's hiking the Camino de Santiago uh, and having a glass of wine every night, but I still text her. And it's my GPS. It's my camera. Uh, it's the one thing that I can't be without. You know what? It takes a big man to admit that. I love to hear it. <laughs> we all bring our phones. We have to admit it. <laughs> yes. All right. And what about, Aaron, I'll start with you being the backpacking meal person. What's a backpacking meal you could eat every day on the trail? And if anyone here listening happens to be one of my followers, they know the answer to this without me even saying it. It's my chocolate peanut butter shake. I've had so many times where I've lost my appetite or I'm sick and tired. I get tired of chewing, believe it or not. And so there's times that I would just rather drink my nutrition. And it's three ingredients. It's whole milk powder, um, peanut butter powder, and carnation breakfast, the chocolate powder mix that you can get in the cereal aisle. It's three ingredients that you can get at the grocery, dump it in a bag, shake it up, add a little bit of water. And actually, I just drink out of the bag. I don't even bother putting it in a cup or a water bottle. And it's a full meal replacement. So it has all the carbs, the protein. Again, here I'm the nerdy dietitian. It has all the nutrition I need in it for a full meal. Um, so one of those always goes with me. I keep them in my hip pocket. So if I feel like I'm getting ready to crash and I need to still climb up and over a mountain, I'll pull it out really quick, add water, and then I'll drink it. Or again, on the Colorado Trail, I completely lost my appetite for over 200 miles. And I relied on those day after day after day. So that's my all-time favorite. And I've been drinking it since 2016, and I'm still not tired of it. Brian, what about you? Is it the uh, soup, the cold, cold soup? (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not the cold soup. Sometimes it doesn't work so well. Uh, you know, I'm fascinated Aaron would say that, though, because I start out every morning with a couple of granola bars, and I have a little plastic bag that has my my protein powder in it, v- veggie and whey protein, that has my whole milk, powdered milk, that has a little instant breakfast in it. I mean, I, I do this. I just pour it into my Gatorade bottle, and that's how I start the day. But I eat a ton of, of GORP, just trail mix. I have a little bag uh, for each day that I've counted out all the calories involved. Uh, some might have uh, cherries in them. Some might have blueberries in them. You know, it's not always just raisins and peanuts and, and it has different kinds of nuts and, and things like that. So those little bags really, you know, uh, the first day out, you think, Oh my gosh, I'm going to I'm going to eat this whole bag of all this <laughs> stuff. Oh my gosh. And so you save half of it and by the end well, you get trail hunger by yes, the end of that. Yes. Where you can eat anything. I mean, you you can sit down and have a, a 5,000 calorie meal. Uh, I remember on on like an Appalachian trail of going in and saying Okay, y'all have your one-pound hamburger, and you have three three desserts. Oh, a pie, and you know all these things. Bring them all three. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Gorp is a classic. It works forever. Yes. Aaron, what is either your best or your worst campsite? And I know this is kind of a joke because you mentioned you actually have a story where you had both in the same place. 
Yes, the, my best campsite and the worst actually happened the same evening. Um, <laughs> going back again, this was on the Colorado Trail, beautiful trail up high. Um, and I particularly had gotten to this spot that everybody talked about it in the Facebook groups. Like, you really need to camp at this spot. So I was like, great. I got there. It's this beautiful view. I want to say it's out. I didn't look it up. I should have. Um, I want to say it's looking into Breckenridge, but at least 180 degree view with the mountains behind me, the view into town down below me. And I set up my tent right near the trail. There's a bench there where I sat and ate my dinner. I called my family because I actually had cell signal finally. So all these things were fine and dandy. Um, and just after finishing my dinner, a biking club came up, a mountain biking club. They were doing laps almost. Um, I had just come down from the top of the ridge. So they were doing laps up and down and up and down the ridge. And they had all gone home. It had gotten dark. I climbed into my tent and somebody else decided to come up after dark. And this is where the worst part of the, the campsite happened is they paced outside my tent for two hours. At least that's all I remember. And again, being a single female, I'm usually fearless. This, I actually fell asleep. I finally gave up and fell asleep with my Garmin pushing the SOS button, like ready to at any point in time to say like, and at, at that time, like I couldn't call my husband because he was actually in the van elsewhere without cell signal. Then I was thinking to myself, well, I could call the police, but they're seven plus miles away on the trail. Still have to like hike in. They're not going to get to me anytime soon. So, you know, all these things are going on in my head. Of, like, who is this person? And I couldn't say anything. So I'm like, well, if I were a big guy, I could be like, hey, you know, like, get out of here. <laughs> I'm this little woman. So lesson learned, had I just camped a little further off the trail behind the trees. And that's what I normally do. I've learned this lesson on other hikes, too, that I know not to camp right on the trail because of that reason um, but it was so beautiful that I was enjoying it but in the long run it ended up being the worst one ever because I've never been so scared at night not knowing who was outside my tent I had a weird experience kind of similar to that where I got into I was along the Pacific Crest Trail doing a section and I got into an area where they were back country like four-wheel drive camping and there was and I thought oh and it was kind of late in the season I thought oh I'll meet a bunch of backcountry campers and it'll be nice to see some people after a few days and there was only one guy there. And pretty quickly, I realized he was not all there. He was a little bit strange. Oh, and I was a little worried about this guy. And he was the only one there. Nobody else showed up. And so I set up my bivy and I put I put like crackly dry branches in a full circle around me oh, so in gosh. case he had tried to come over to where I was. <laughs> so that he would have to step on it and it would wake me up. And I slept with my knife in my hand. Uh, <laughs> well, and I was even afraid to like message on my Garmin because I hadn't turned off the sound on it. So anytime I would try to send something to my husband, hoping he would get reach me or hear me, that it would be like, you know, message sent or those kinds of things. So I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm really, this is one of the only times I've been that scared. Again, I've hiked lots by myself. I should point out it was probably all in my head and he was probably a very nice man and I had nothing against him. It was just one of those circumstances where I realized I put myself in an awkward situation. Yeah. Well, you're still alive. I'm still here, yeah. <laughs> Brian, what about you? Any particularly bad or wonderful campsites that come to mind over the years? Well, there are, there are a lot of wonderful campsites where you have spectacular views. Sure. In fact, the cover of the book is one of those where I, it's the very last day of my through hike, and I'm not going to be picked up at Lake Piru until tomorrow. So, well, I don't need to finish the night here and, and walk in darkness. So I just camped out and saw a beautiful sunset. And a, a lot of those uh, where you get just spectacular views, you know, that are they're very inspirational. 
uh, are just favorites of mine. It's a beautiful picture. And I think like a lot of great pictures, one of the things that makes it, I think, is the clouds. It's the fact that you've got the sunset playing off the clouds. And that's when you get a day like that, where you have some cloud cover, but it's not raining. Yes. You can just get these amazing sunsets. And those are some of my favorites to remember. All right. Last question before we go. What is the worst weather you've ever experienced on the trail or outdoors in any capacity? And what'd you do about it? Another one of my long distance hikes um, on the Appalachian Trail, I learned what real rain is like. <laughs> day after day after day of just downpours, the creeks, or excuse me, the trail turning into a creek. Um, so it wasn't necessarily like thunder and lightning and that kind of thing. It was just pure misery of just being wet all the time, having trench foot day after day and not being able to eat my hot meals. I know, Brian, you like your cold meals, but not to be able to eat a hot meal because I didn't want to sit out in the rain and with my stove and just be drenched even more. Your clothes are always wet. So that kind of thing. And I think, again, I was so traumatized by that Then when I did the Colorado Trail, the thunderstorms in the afternoon there, I knew to hustle like up and over the ridge before the afternoon storms. And I would actually stop hiking at one or two o'clock in the afternoon just to avoid the rain. Like, I, I hate the rain that much. And I just felt so bad for other hikers that were coming past my tent on the Colorado a trail in the rain. I was just like, oh my gosh, I feel so bad for you because they were just pushing right on through it, soaking wet. And the Colorado Trail never got that hot. So nothing, same kind of thing. It just never dried out. So similar thing that, again, it just wasn't lightning and thunder and those kinds of things that I was really aware of, afraid of. It was just the being miserable day after day. Brian, what about you? Well, similarly, one of those wet days. In fact, this is the last day of my section hike. The Ventana Wilderness had just opened up because of the Soberanas fire going through. Soberanas, is, it's a family name up there. And the rain came in. I misjudged the window. I was stuck in that damn little canyon for too long, <laughs> too many hours. And the rain came in and just flooded everything. There was water in the tent. The, everything's wet. My down sleeping bag is wet. Oh, my gosh. Uh, how am I ever going to live? Uh, and I was within a day of finishing. Well, this is January. It was cold. It, it was just the storm cell was just so intense. I couldn't believe how how it was hitting me so hard. In fact, uh, I saw a sign that says Pat Camp. And I was on my way up to Devil's Peak. Well, I took the back way up to Devil's Peak, and I had never been there before, but I knew the trail cut sharply south after uh, Devil's Peak. So I rounded Devil's Peak, and I didn't pull out my GPS or anything. I just headed back down the mountain, and I'll be darned, there was a sign that said, Pat Camp, as if there were two of them on both sides of the mountain. <laughs> I don't think so. So I headed back up the mountain. I actually pulled out all my wet stuff and, and got my bearings and I started running. Uh, when you get to Botcher's Gap, you still have three and a half miles to go because the road hasn't been open now for years. And I had a car stashed at that point. Well, I got in the car. I drove home to Santa Barbara. I'm soaking wet. Uh, but the heater's running. <laughs> so what if you're what? I came home and hugged my wife and, and took a shower, went to bed. It was January 9. That same storm cell wiped out Montecito and killed people that we knew. Wow. Wow. That was the worst one. That's a tough note to end on, but we'll push through. Thank you both for coming on the show to talk about the Condor Trail. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for letting us share our experience with it.
Thanks again to Aaron and Brian. And I hope that Aaron, Brian, and I have inspired you to hike the Condor Trail, or at least a part of it. And if you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research, particularly on a trail like the Condor Trail, where there is so much of it that is not a full-blown trail. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Let me talk about our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we will be heading to a European trek where we'll spend five days in the Alps on a trail that is known as much for its beauty as for its solitude. Yes, you can still find some relatively lightly traveled routes in the Alps of Europe. And despite that it's lightly traveled, this route is actually close to civilization and thus easy to reach for international travelers. On our next episode, we'll circle the Wilder Kaiser Massif, staying in mountain huts as we ascend and descend more than 5,000 meters on the Kaiserkron in the Tyrol Alps of Austria. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.